We're combining all the best old school wisdom with all the top new school methods to bring you the optimal way to coach and play the great game of baseball. This is the 80-20 Baseball Masterclass with Coach Bo. Welcome coaches, players, parents. Welcome to the 80-20 Baseball Weekly Get Together. Here we are. This episode, we are going to discuss why it is so important to practice fast. And this is an additional benefit, but a massive benefit outside of being efficient. So we're going to get into that. Second, we're going to do a book review. We're going to do a book review on a book that I just finished, and it was actually recommended to me by one of the original listeners of this podcast, Coach Cosimo. And now before we get into that, it is always great to have you all here joining us up on our weekly get together coming out every Tuesday with a new episode, molding that coaching paradigm, shaping it, improving it week by week. 30 minutes-ish at a time. And thank you all for joining us today. First, 80-20 Baseball, what is it all about? We've discussed this. You can go to the website. You can get a much better feel at 8020baseball.com. There's a lot of stuff there that'll explain it. And just kind of, you'll get the vibe of what 80-20 Baseball is all about. It started when I realized that the baseball community, the baseball coaching community, there was a lot of wisdom out there. There was a lot of wisdom. And having spent 30 five plus years in the baseball community, year in, month in, month out, year in, year out, getting immersed in all of that wisdom was massively beneficial. And without that, I wouldn't be where I'm at. 8020 baseball wouldn't be where it's at. But about 10 to 12 years ago, I stepped out and I started to study. I started to research. I started digging in, listening, reading books, watching videos, podcasts from world-class performers, experts in totally random fields. And then what I did was I started to see commonalities. I started to see commonalities across all these areas. And also I saw that there are so many really good ideas that are out there in the world that have been out there that the baseball community has not brought into it on a large scale and in some cases at all. And I think that the isolation, kind of the insulated nature of baseball, I remember when I was younger, my dad told me this and he said, hey, it's a good old boys club. It's a good old boys club. That's just what it is. Major League Professional Baseball it's two you know, and if you're in, you're in. If you're not in, you're not in. Now, this was back in the 90s when he told me this, and things have definitely changed. But the, the message and that vibe is very true in the coaching community. If you haven't won a national title for a high school, then, or if you haven't coached a college baseball team, then, then your ideas aren't quickly accepted or accepted at all. And I think that's an issue, but even more so, the problem with only using the wisdom within the baseball coaching community and not drawing from all the wisdom out there is we're missing out on a lot of wisdom that can be translated and transferred into the baseball coaching community. And that's where the epiphany came to me about 10 years ago. I said, why? The baseball community, I got all this baseball knowledge. I've been around some of the best coaches. I've been in the game. I've studied it since 1985-ish. I played high-level college. I played for an elite high school program. I played professionally. And then I stepped back and I go, wait a second. There are so many competitive advantages and just better ways to do what the baseball community is doing by using information, knowledge, and strategies that aren't inside the baseball community, that didn't come from the baseball coaching community. This is already going on in the baseball coaching community. A lot of people are familiar with TPI, the Titleist Performance Institute. This is something that is a 
entity that trains with technology, among other things, and data, and also motion analysis sensors and things like that. It trains the golf swing. It trains golfers to be better. And it was brought into the baseball community about, I don't know, say 10 years ago or so. I don't know exactly the date, but it, it was brought in. And the TPI teachings have been used in the baseball community. Same with sabermetrics. Look at sabermetrics. I know that's not necessarily a skill development thing, but sabermetrics is another good example of how knowledge, wisdom from outside of baseball came into baseball and has produced better results by and large. I don't agree with everything data-driven, but if you're out there and you're listening, you're reading things and you hear people that are data haters or sabermetric or moneyball haters or launch angle or whatever haters, I would be very, very cautious listening to them because if they can't give you the benefits and the, the pros and the cons of both sides, if they don't share with you the benefits of this stuff, of analytics, data, if they don't share with you the benefits, the good along with the bad, and all they ever do is kind of trash it, then you got to be careful with that. That's not a healthy approach and it's not an accurate approach. It's not a fully transparent message. I see that a lot in the baseball community where like Moneyball and data and it's just constant, but I don't hear those same people sharing the positives, the benefits, because they're flat out our benefits. It's clear data is very useful if it's used right. It's not the savior, but it's a very useful tool. And to say that it's all bad is not a good thing. Also with the TPI, the information, the strategies, the techniques, the teaching, the pedagogy of the Titleist Performance Institute, that's not the cure-all, end-all, be-all of teaching and teaching hitters and pitchers, but it can be a useful tool and it's been brought over. So it had to do with golf. It was brought over. Sabermetrics is simply a bunch of Wall Street analysts, a bunch of data crunchers that were brought into baseball, many in which didn't have much baseball experience. In fact, the Giants, the San Francisco Giants just won, last this past season won more games than any other baseball team, professional baseball team. They set franchise records for wins. They were one run away from tying and two runs away from going to the championship series in the National League. They had a phenomenal year and they were run by a group of people, of course, and there's hundreds of people that impact the success of the Giants or any team for that matter or of anything in the world. But they are run. Their president was a guy who never played really any baseball. He's not a baseball guy. He's like a Cal Berkeley MIT grad. He's not a one-off success. This has been happening for 20 years. And the wisdom that they're using came from outside of baseball. And then they're blending it with the wisdom inside of baseball to have all the success. And that is a main reason why 80-20 baseball is different because we've taken stuff from outside and we blend it with all the successful wisdom that is in the baseball community already and has been proven over the last 100 years, 20 years, 50 years. Here's another example. You got an iPhone, or if you don't have an iPhone, you have a smartphone, Gorilla Glass. So from what I understand, Gorilla Glass, the glass that the iPhone is made with, the touchscreen, came from something that was developed for something completely different. In fact, I think it was developed like back in the 60s, and it sat on the shelves for years, and then Steve Jobs and his team came across it or got a hold of it, and they added it to the iPhone. It wasn't something that was on computers. It wasn't something that was on the BlackBerry. It wasn't something that was being used in PDAs. Some of you're old enough to remember PDAs. This is something that was taken from another industry and then brought into the smartphone cell phone industry. And that was the biggest game changer of all. So the biggest game changer with the iPhone and with the smartphone came from outside of the smartphone community. You could go on and on and on examples of this in your industries. There's tons of examples everywhere, everywhere. So the baseball community I saw very insulated. It was what was known in the baseball community was what was taught and getting information from outside was pushed away or it wasn't accepted that well, or it was treated as it was foreign and it was, it, it wasn't, it was different. And this is the kind of mindset that I think has one, it leads to very few competitive advantages because you're just simply almost copycatting everybody else. You're not bringing in strategies. 
And also, it's not a growth mindset. It's really not a growth mindset. Baseball had been around for 150 years. It's hard to grow and improve on 150 years of wisdom unless you seek outside of the baseball coaching community. So that's what 8020 Baseball really grew from, taking all the wisdom within the game and building it with some of the world-class wisdom and performers outside of baseball, combining it together. And that's where we're at. Speaking of taking wisdom from outside the baseball community, I've talked about this before. Some of the wisdom that I've brought here into the baseball community from outside and we've imparted into the paradigm that we're teaching here at 8020 Baseball came from the Navy SEALs. I've explained this on a couple episodes, so I'm not going to go too in-depth about it. But if you want to know how to run a team, you should probably first, we should probably first look at the teams that are out there that are most reliant on success. They have the most to lose and losing your life is the most you can lose. And the Navy SEALs special op teams, if they mess up, if they don't work together, if they don't follow the rules, if they're not teams that are cohesive, if they don't seek the best answers, if they don't find the best answers, if they don't use the best answers and solution, people die. Nothing like baseball, nothing like sports. So in baseball, you get a lot of people teaching the game of baseball, but there's not a whole lot to lose. A lot of them have their jobs or secure, especially if it's lower levels. There's really not much to lose. High school baseball coaches, youth baseball coaches, you don't make any money. You don't really make much at all, right? So there's really not a whole lot to lose. And a lot of the communities and the schools and they're thankful to have a coach. But when you get to the college level and the pro level, there's more urgency. They need to use what works because if they don't, that's their livelihood versus like a high school coach. A lot of times is a teacher and has the income coming from outside. They're really not making anything as a coach. And youth baseball, of course, isn't really making anything at all. You're doing it to serve the community. You're doing it to serve and help your kid and your team and the players in your area. Navy SEALs, they got their life on the line. So when I looked at the Navy SEALs and I said, well, I got to study these teams because they have their life on the line. They have the most to lose of any team in the entire world, not just Navy SEALs, but those teams, the special ops teams, things like that. And I remember reading a couple books on how they train, and it was very apparent that they train fast. They train fast and they train super difficult. And they said very clear, very clear, and it's pretty obvious why they do it. They want when they go to battle, they want when they get into some situation, they want it to be easier than what they trained for. So practicing fast as a coach, as a baseball team, it not only gets more quality reps done efficiently. That's awesome, right? That's awesome. Quality reps done efficiently is a huge staple, a huge foundational component of the 80-20 baseball coaching paradigm and message. But also practicing fast, it's as much about slowing down the speed of the game by speeding up the pace of practice. Not just the pace, but more importantly, the drills, the training activities that you're doing in practice. By speeding up practice, by speeding up those drills in practice, that will inherently slow down the game for your players. If you've ever listened, and I know most of you have, you've listened to interviews of players that make the jump from high school to college. And you can extrapolate this out and also apply it from 11U to 12U or from or from 7U to 9U. You can take out this thought, this message, this truism and apply it across the board at any level. But if you ever listen to interviews of players that have gone from high school to college and college to pro, you listen to these interviews, you see them a lot, you can YouTube it, you can ask, you can YouTube what's interview with so-and-so biggest difference between college and the pros. They will literally never have an interview that will never go more than five minutes, two minutes, 10 seconds without saying the game is a faster speed. It's played at a faster speed. The speed of the game is faster. The speed of the game has picked up a lot. And that they say is the biggest adjustment. They'll say the biggest adjustment is the speed of the game. The biggest adjustment is the speed 
speed of the game. Well, how do you make it less of an adjustment? Speed up your practice, speed up your training. I know I'm not talking about transitioning from college to pro here. We're talking about youth baseball, but how do you get your player to transition, your players, your team to transition from practice to the game and not have the game speed up on them? Because it's already going to speed up on them mentally. The anxiety, it's going to be higher. It's natural. It's wired into us, but we can offset this. We can reduce this discrepancy between the speed of practice and the speed of the game by bringing up our practice speed, speeding up the drill, challenging our players and our teams. This is huge. So speeding up practice is not just about getting quality reps efficiently, which is massive. It also speeds up. You can also speed up practice. So thus it will inherently or it will relatively slow down the speed of the game, the difference that the players will notice when they get to the game. My high school coach is a Hall of Fame coach. He one of the winningest coaches in all of California state history for high school. He's given many speeches across the country. He did so many things. He was ahead of the curve on so many things. Now, there were some things I didn't agree with. I thought that he could have been more of a player coach. I think he could have related more to the players, but I know he's an old school coach and that was a little different growing up in the 50s and early 60s that he saw. So cut him some slack on that. But I'll tell you some of the things he did. One of them was organization, always organized practice plan, always dialed in, knew exactly what to do, exactly this. He had meetings with players. He did really communicate with players very well. He communicated what they needed to do. There was meetings throughout the year with the players one-on-one. But one of the things he did better than anything was the speed of practice. Practice was fast. Practice was fast. Everybody was sprinting around, running around. Drills were moving. Drills were going fast. And so we'd get into games and we'd play teams. Not every team, but we'd play a handful of teams every year. Half the teams we play every year, they could. They just didn't know what hit them. It was like they just got in the middle of a tornado and it was just done. And the speed of, of and the tempo that our team played at, our school played at, was at another level. And I'll tell you what, that was all from practice. It wasn't something that was just turned on when game time came around. That was something that was turned on in practice. So when the game time came around, the players in our program, that was normal speed for them. The game never was fast. The game never sped up for the high school team that I played for. And it was a very good high school team. In fact, my sophomore year where I wasn't much of a contributor because the team was so stacked with studs. And I did an an episode a while back about the player of the year on that team. That team finished like number three in the country of all high school teams. And then we were in the top 25 my junior year of all teams in the country. Went back to Dodger Stadium my junior year. I pitched that game. We played at Angel Stadium my sophomore year for the Southern California Championship. This was pretty high level baseball. And Coach Curran got us going during practice in our drills at the field, not under the lights, not during game time, but he got us going in practice fast. We practiced fast. We played fast. And he was very transparent about that. He's like, we play fast. We move fast. He wanted to be fast. So the other team and the other coaches were left scrambling. Now, something that has not really much to do with changing how the other team is going to respond to how fast you play, but also just the game, the speed of the game, the players are going to play more relaxed when the game doesn't feel super fast. The anxiety comes from multiple things. But one of the things that anxiety that players get comes from is the game just moving too fast and they panic. It's hard to panic if the speed of the game is something you're used to day in and day out at practice or for youth baseball week in and week out. So I wanted to touch on that. Practicing fast is as much about slowing down the speed of the game by speeding up the drills and pace of practice as it is about the efficiency of getting more quality reps. So just right there, two massive, massive reasons to practice fast. Not all the time, but the majority of your practice should be moving fast. Not all of your drill. You have to take some time to slow down. It's a balancing act. You have to slow down. I want some coaches to hear this that are probably sitting there going, do it. You got to, you don't slow down. 
down and explain something and slow down. Of course you do. Yeah, you, you slow down when you need to, and then you keep it going as fast as you can. And by going as fast as you can, inherently, there are going to be times that it dictates you need to slow down and get that communication, the skill, the strategy, the development of that technique down by going slower. Now, one thing to help communicate faster is by communicating more clearly, coaching clearly, and by saying less, but using your words more effectively and having more impact with fewer, more concise, clear words, a clearer message. This will help players play fast. You want to play fast? Make sure you're not giving them 14 bullet points or 14 things to do on any given play or whatnot. Players play fast when they don't have to make a bunch of decisions. It should be an either or. Either or. It shouldn't be an either or 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 this or that. It should be on this play, it's either this or that. And there should be parameters very clear. If this happens, do this. If this happens, do that. Think about an option football team. Quarterback takes the ball, runs down the line of scrimmage, typically one to the right or to the left, staying along the line of scrimmage as best as possible, just behind his lineman. And he's reading typically the unblocked defensive end. Sometimes it's an outside backer, just depends, right? He's reading one player. If that player comes up to him, he pitches. If that player goes to the pitch man, usually the running back, fullback, halfback, he then takes it himself. I get it. There are more. So if there's a, an off, an unbalanced blitz, but when the nice thing about an option offense is they get up to the line, a good option offense gets up to the line, looks at the number of players on each side of the, the center, on each side of the ball, and then just does some simple math, knows which side has fewer players or which side has a better probability of getting blocked according to their practice plan, their scheme, and then they run it that way. So they don't usually run into something that's unexpected for the most part. But it's very simple. It's take the snap, run towards the end of the line of scrimmage. If the defensive end or the outside backer, typically defensive end, comes up to get you, you pitch. If not, you cut up the field and go. Same thing with the RPO offense and things like that. But not to get too much into football, I just want you to know I like to use examples outside that and sometimes better illustrate the point that we're trying to make inside the baseball community, baseball coaching community. Now, book review time. Let's get into this book review. Talent is overrated by Jeff Colvin, but I want to say Geoff. It's G-E-O-F-F. I feel like that should be Geoff. Geoff, Jeff Colvin, shout out to Cosimo, one of my original listeners, a longtime supporter of this show. Cosimo reached out and said, hey, Coach Bo, I think you should read this book. And I'll tell you what, it was a good read. Talent is overrated by Geoff Colvin. And when you're done reading it, give me your feedback. Give me your thoughts on it. You can email me, Coach Bo at 8020baseball.com. Coach Bo, B-O as in Bo Jackson, as in the American athlete version of the name, not the fake French faux version of it. B-E-A-U or something of that spelling that I feel like is the soap opera uh, version of it. But nonetheless, all bad jokes aside, the Mozart story that the book discusses, the author discusses at the beginning of the book, talent is overrated. The Mozart story is very enlightening because it breaks down and looks at the research and, and actually researches the Mozart, Mozart's life. And most of us, including myself, until I read this book last week, were thinking Mozart was born a musical genius, a musical prodigy. A lot of us were told that he was just born there. He was three years old and he was conducting symphonies. Well, he wasn't. In fact, it discusses, and I'm not going to share the entire story, but it discusses how his dad was a musician, a musical teacher, was somebody who was already very advanced with his education in music and sat Mozart down when he was, say, like three years old and was teaching him and making him practice very much like Earl Woods, Tiger Woods's 
father. He had Tiger out there golfing, or it sounds like he had him golfing in the garage or in kind of a makeshift little range where he was hitting it into a net like at three years old or two years old, some crazy young age. And Mozart was very much the same. He was doing and writing music at a very young age. And then he also had a father who was right there with him, giving him expert or at least more than advanced or more than basic, definitely closer to the advanced education in music, composing, instrumental stuff. And I'm not an expert, but I'm not even a beginner at any of that. So I'm going to leave it at that. Tiger Woods, his dad, Earl Woods, went and studied golf and learned about the golf. And I think it was something to do with the military or in Earl Woods was a little older. So I think he had some extra time to study golf and, and had learned some key things to teach and some of the key strategies or the key skills and techniques to teach. And then he sat down Tiger and uh, I, I want to say he was already retired from whatever. So he had a lot of time on his hand. And at like two or three years old, he sat Tiger down or just, he didn't sit him down. He put him in front of the golf net and let him hit, hit, hit and hit some more and took him out on the golf course. And it wasn't as though Tiger was born with the genetics that made him win all those major tournaments and all that. It wasn't that. It was, well, part of it is genetics, of course. That's not what the book is arguing. But the biggest part of it is starting at a young age was a big factor. And also the amount of quality repetitions, the amount of deliberate practice, quality focused training. So the book stipulates that you don't necessarily, or the evidence doesn't show that you need to start super young. It helps. But the biggest thing was that you get a certain amount, 10,000 hours of deliberate quality focused training, high quality training, and that it was about hard work and focused training more than you were born that way or not. I also want to say it was that book or an article that I was reading last week that said, don't choose the best player for your team, choose the right player. And the right player, and how this ties into what I was just talking about with this book, Talent is Overrated, the right player is going to give a full effort, high focus, quality focus towards practice, good energy. They're going to show up early. They're going to leave late. They're going to get a lot of quality, deliberate practice done. And they will eventually, over the course of the season and definitely over the course of their career, they will pass up the more talented player, the better player, because they're doing more quality, deliberate practice, and they're not just relying on some genetics. Now, when it comes to physical things, LeBron James, the height, like in basketball or even in baseball and in sports, size does matter. So that is genetic a lot of times, especially the height. I think it's pretty much all genetic. Nutrition also, and also some other things that could happen along the way in terms of health. Height is something that's hard to say like, well, you know, LeBron James or Yao Ming or Shaq, you know, Shaq was huge. I think 7'1", 330 pounds. We could say the weight was something that he did, but the height, there's not really much he did or didn't do to get to that height. And so that is something that he was born with for the most part. So the book really hits on the message that we shouldn't just be down and out because we maybe don't have this genetic uh, lineage that's going to lead us or make us think that we're going to be successful in any endeavor or sport or whatever. It really boils down to quality focused training, a high level, a high quantity of high quality focused training. And this is important because it's not just the best player you see out there, the most talented player you see out there at tryouts or in the league that you want on your team. You want somebody who's going to go out there and put the reps in high quality focused 
focused training that's going to get it done, that's going to be coachable, and that's going to move and blow past all those perceived uber talented or super talented players. Now, if you can put them both together, then you get a Mike Trout, you get players like that. But those are something that kind of are a little bit out of our control as coaches want to focus on the things within our circle of influence. And that most definitely is building a practice that has not just a vast amount of quality reps, but also focused and deliberate practice, focused quality reps. And to add on to this 10,000 hour rule that most all of you have probably heard, and some of you have heard a lot of this 10,000 hour rule. I think Malcolm Gladwell talked about it in the book Outliers. He wrote this 10,000 hour rule that that you become a master at something with 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. The flaw with using just that statistic, just that data point, time, number, minutes, that you are not assessing or not evaluating or not quantifying the quality of that practice of the work done during that 10,000 hours. In fact, I don't think it's a stretch to go out and it's not at all going out on a limb to say that there's never been somebody who's completed 10,000 hours of deliberate practice that's all done it at the same level or to the same quality. Everybody who's done those 10,000, let's say, quote unquote, those 10,000 hours of deliberate practice that Malcolm Gladwell talks about, that Jeff Colvin talks about, Geoff Colvin talks about here in Talent is Overrated. Everybody who's completed 10,000 hours of one particular task or one particular sport, etc., falls somewhere on the spectrum of the quality of that training, somewhere from very poor. Typically, that's not going to be the case. Somebody who does 10,000 hours of a certain task to get really good at it, to get very proficient at it is not doing it poorly, but there's a huge difference between training at the optimal level and slightly optimal or just above average or at a good level or a great level and then the best level. There's definitely variations in training. Something to keep in mind. So saying that five athletes, five baseball players spent 10,000 hours of their life training baseball, training the hitting swing, training the pitching delivery, training on ground balls, training on their steel jumps, doesn't mean they all train the same way. They did maybe in hours, but that's only one data point that leaves out that omits a lot of quality information and a lot of assessment information that is needed. So anyways, that book, Talent is Overrated, is very interesting. I thought it was really good. I mean, the Mozart story and the Tiger Woods story alone was worth the read just at the beginning. Cosimo, thank you for that recommendation. So people are not born as world-class performers, but they work very hard at it through deliberate practice, quality-focused training to get there and a lot of it. So it all goes back to my trademark quote, don't fall for the talent tease. Don't fall for the talent tease. Get the right player, not the best player. And in fact, the right player is the best player. But when people say that, obviously they're referring to the talent. Don't get the most talented player, get the right player. And then focus on deliberate practice on a quality process, a quality training process. All right, next week, we got baseball coaching tweets of the month. Next week, our five top tweets of the month that I found out there on the Twitter sphere. Again, I've told you before, I'm not a big fan of Twitter, but I do like Twitter from the baseball community perspective. I like the baseball community on Twitter. It's the only thing I subscribe and, and follow. Next week, top tweets of the month. Also, the fall coaching webinar is available on the website, 8020baseball.com. It's on there. You can go on there. You can purchase it. I'll send it right over to you. You're going to get the webinar video. It's been edited. It also comes with eight drill videos. It comes with eight videos on top of that. I'll also send you along with that, the 11 PDFs that come with that, that go along with those videos, the dynamic warm-up, the throwing routine, the top ground ball drill, batting practice design, and base running drills. So go on there. Easy. It's got Apple Pay, Google Pay. 
It's really easy to get. It's $50. You get all that. It's simple. You can be in and out. I get an email that says you bought it. I send you all of the information, all the stuff, all the attachments. I send you the links and things like that that you need, and you're off and running. So head on over to 8020baseball.com. And until next time, take care of yourselves. Take care of your families. I know you are. Take care of your baseball community, your inner baseball community, your team, your players by taking this information out there and implementing it, using it, trusting it, giving it time. And speaking of time, that's all the time we have today. And I'll see you next time, next Tuesday, when the next episode rolls out. Adios. This has been the 8020 Baseball Masterclass. Take it to the field.